today we jump back into our study of uh, Peter, uh, the church's first pastor, and this letter that he was writing to the churches. And we're going to be in 1 Peter chapter 5 and looking at the subject of what is it that God is looking for in Christian leaders. Now, immediately when we read this text, it's going to have application to pastoral leadership. Uh, Peter is writing as an elder to elders. But I don't want this to get beyond every single one of us because if God has put you in any position of a Christian leader, whether it be as a, a deacon or a Sunday school teacher or a vacation Bible school leader, I believe that the principles that we're going to look at here are going to apply to every one of us who God has called to a position of Christian leadership. Now, to illustrate this, I, I come kind of with a heavy heart. I want to share something that, that's been on my heart. Just this week, uh, Southern Baptists are back in the news because lawyers filed suit in a court in Kentucky on behalf of three of our Southern Baptist organizations. Uh, basically, without getting into all the details of it, they filed briefs on behalf of the, the Sunday of the Lifeway, which used to be called the Sunday School Board, Southern Baptist Theological Seminary, and uh, the executive board asking that the state of Kentucky not extend their uh, ability for sex abuse survivors to sue beyond a particular date. So not extend uh, a date of responsibility. Most of the people that were on the boards for those institutions representing Southern Baptists didn't know it. And yet it is exactly the opposite of what the heart of a Christian leader should be. A few years ago, uh, there was a famous pastor who uh, lives out west of Fort Worth, and uh, many of you are, are familiar with, the, with him. He lives out in Newark, uh, out close to Donnie, and he was defending the fact, defending the, the, the choice that his uh, ministry had made to uh, purchase their third jet their third private jet. Now, his reason for that, that he told the, uh, the reporter that was asking him questions was because he was too high and lofty to fly with regular people. He could not, he could not bring it upon himself to, to go preach somewhere, to do ministry, and have to get there in a long tube filled with demons. Well, he's talking about human beings, you and me. He, he couldn't fly commercial because he couldn't be on a jet uh, that might have other people in it who weren't as wonderful as him, as holy as him. And I still scratch my head and say, well, okay. First of all, I got huge issues with that. Second of all, you can't fly on three jets at one time. How many do you need? 2021, sadly, one of the uh, two, in fact, the guy who lost the vote to become the president of the Southern Baptist Convention by a narrow margin turned around and sued in federal court Russell Moore, the head of the Religious Ethics and Religious Liberty Committee, and said that he had written an article that defamed him. Now, I pause. First of all, I hesitated to even share those stories because I, as your pastor and as a staff, I believe that God has placed us in a position to help lead this church body. 
And there are some wonderful things, and there's a reason that we are connected to the Southern Baptist Convention. And, and primarily, it's because of the work through international missions. Through our foreign mission board is what it used to be called. Now it's called the International Mission Board. And so some of this stuff, uh, I even hate to bring to your attention because I'm bringing something up that a lot of you wouldn't already know. But here's the issue. If you find yourself following or connected to a pastor or a Christian leader who does not line up with the biblical characteristics of what a Christian leader should be, you need to flee from them. No matter how great of a preacher they may be, no matter how great of a communicator they be, may be, no matter how many millions of dollars they have, they have gathered through their ministry or how many followers they've gathered through their ministry, if they do not line up with what God's word says, the kind of character that they ought to have, you need to, to, to flee from them, Amen. not follow them. First Peter chapter five, Peter as an elder is writing to other elders. Now the word elder, I'll, I'll touch base on that term real quickly. I've, I've taught on this before. There's three terms that are used in the New Testament that are used interchangeably uh, that really refer to one office in the local church. That is the, the, the term elder, and it's the one that's used most often. The word overseer, is used second most often. The word overseer, uh, you'll find in um, like 1 Timothy chapter 3 with the qualifications for pastors. Okay, it, there he uses the word, Paul uses the word overseer. And the other word is shepherd or pastor. So those are the three terms and they're essentially used interchangeably. And without getting into all of the, the minutia there, I can show you a couple different texts where they clearly are used interchangeably. And really this is one of them because here, uh, Peter's going to say, I'm writing to the elders and I'm calling on you to shepherd God's flock as an overseer. So he's using all three terms in various ways right here. So the, what we're talking about is Peter's writing particularly about those who are in leadership in the local church. Now, here, let me read the text for you. I exhort the elders among you as a fellow elder and witness to the sufferings of Christ as well as one who shares in the glory about to be revealed, shepherd God's flock among you. Not overseen out of compulsion, but willingly as God would have you. Not out of greed for money, but eagerly. Not lording it over those entrusted to you, but being examples to the flock. And when the chief shepherd appears, you will receive the unfading crown of glory. In the same way, you who are younger, be subject to the elders. All of you clothe yourselves with humility toward one another because God resists the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Now, immediately upon reading this text, I, I imagine Peter is hearing the words of Christ in John chapter, from John chapter 10, that John recorded, where Jesus speaks about what it means to be a shepherd. That's the terminology that Peter's using here, shepherd God's flock among you. In that passage in John chapter 10, Jesus speaks of the difference between a good shepherd and a hireling. A hireling, when trouble comes, doesn't care about the sheep, the hireling will flee, but a good shepherd will lay down his life for his sheep. He knows his sheep. He knows the sheep know his voice and he knows them. 
I think that you see Jesus' teaching integrated here in these first five verses as Peter reaches out to fellow pastors, fellow shepherds, or elders to give them some instruction. Now, there's a lot of different ways to approach this text. I'm gonna, I've decided that today I want to give you seven characteristics of a Christ-like leader. I'm going to approach the text a little bit differently than I often do. Uh, by some, I usually divide it by uh, commands and things like that, but, but there's seven characteristics of a Christ-like leader that appear here. And I want to walk through those characteristics from the text in the order that they appear in the text. The first one is the principle of stewardship. Christian leaders, Christ-like leaders need to understand that we are stewards of God's flock. What does that mean? What it means is that ministry or that church or that Sunday school class is not yours. It's God's. The people of this congregation, this you don't belong to me. I think that a lot of problems we have with our, our Christian leaders is they, they see this, uh, this great group of, of this ministry that they've grown, whether it be a church or whether it be a parachurch ministry. They see all this and they look at, oh, look at what I built. Look at what I've done. All this is mine. No, it's not. None of it's yours. It all belongs to God. He is the ruler. He's the king. This is his church. We, including me, are his flock. We belong to him. And when God calls a pastor or a leader to a particular role to serve, he hasn't, those people, that ministry doesn't belong to you, still belongs to him. We're stewards of God's resources. I, I'll tell you, when this hit me most clearly, came down to the most basic level as a father. Not long after Katie was born, in fact, within days after Katie was born, I realized that my children don't belong to me. Ultimately, they belong to God. And because they belong to him, he gives them life. He can take them home when he wants to. He has called me, had called me as her dad and the father of the, the four girls that he gave me to be a steward for him. I was to raise them to follow Jesus. I was to teach them about Jesus. But there was going to come a day. I had girls now, remember. So there was going to come a day when I walked the aisle with my daughters and gave them away. It's coming, Stephen. <laughs> Up until that day, as a father, I was, had responsibility. I was a steward as God's uh, intermediary in some ways to raise those daughters. But they never belong to me. They're always his. I want to tell you, if, if my kids are never fully mine, I'm just a steward for the time that he's allowed me to be their dad and to, to lead them. How much more so is any ministry? Whether you're leading a kid's beach club or you're leading a, a, a women's ministry or you're leading a, a mission movement, it's never yours. It always belongs to God. And if we keep that in perspective, I think it helps us in a couple ways. 
one, it keeps us humble and we don't claim it as our own, but two, it helps alleviate some of the pressure. Because if this is God's church, Jesus made a promise about his church, it'll never be defeated. My church may be defeated at some point. His church will never be defeated. His church will never fall. Second, so the first characteristic is stewardship. Second characteristic is proximity. Now, what the heck does he mean by that? Notice what he says here. He, he commands, Peter commands the, the elders to shepherd God's flock among you. You are to be with those whom you are serving. You are to, be, you're to know them, as I pointed back in, in John chapter 10, Jesus said, my sheep know me, they know my voice, and I know each one of them individually. A good shepherd will know his sheep. If God has given you responsibility for any kind of ministry, it is not for you to execute that ministry from on high, seated behind a desk somewhere. God has called you to be involved in the lives of, of those whom you are serving, whom you are leading. I believe Jesus gave us a great example of this. Jesus was a great teacher, and there's, there's pastors who, who desire to be a lot more of a preacher than they desire to be a pastor. They, they, they relish the, the, the pulpit. They, they relish the, the, the ability to stand before, whether it's tens or hundreds or thousands, and proclaim the word of God, but what they don't want is to go into homes and to sit down in hospital beds and, and, and to, to go unclog toilets. Whatever it is that God calls you to do, I, I'm here to tell you that if you are called of God to serve in ministry, there is no job that is below you. There's no job that's beyond you because God will empower you to accomplish whatever he's called you to, but there's no job that is below you. A pastor should never say, well, that's not my job. I don't do those kind of things because I have my degree on the wall. If, if you have a pastor that's saying those kind of things, once again, you're not following a pastor with a heart of God. Best example I can give you is the night before Jesus died. He comes into the upper room and is... is Disciples had been traveling all day. They had just walked behind a donkey down the streets of Jerusalem as Jesus is riding on it. They come into the upper room. All of the disciples are seated around, and even Judas Iscariot, who was about to turn Jesus in, who was about to betray Christ. And Jesus picks up a basin of water and a towel. And he goes to each disciple one at a time and begins to wash their feet. The greatest picture of a servant from the king who had enough on his mind and enough on his plate already, who he was about to go to the Garden of Gethsemane to be arrested, to be beaten, brutally tortured, and crucified in less than 24 hours. That king who had stepped out of heaven to enter into the womb of a virgin, that king humbled himself, washed the feet of Peter, who was about to deny him, the other disciples who were about to flee, 
and Judas, who was about to betray him. You don't have to look any further to see the best example of servant leadership. Jesus was there serving with a, with a heart that yearned for his disciples. Third characteristic that you see in this text is oversight. Now that almost sounds the opposite of what I've just said. We, we've just talked about being a servant leader, being willing to humble yourself and, 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 and serve. But oversight does not mean that you have to lord it over others. But what oversight means, and as, as he says here, not overseen out of compulsion, but willingly, is to have a heart that accepts the responsibility that God has given you. So if God has given you a responsibility to teach a Sunday school class of five, you're responsible for those five being discipled. If God has given you the heart, or he's given you the call to be a pastor over hundreds, you're responsible for the spiritual lives of those, of that flock. One of the scariest passages in all the scripture to me as a pastor comes from Hebrews chapter 13, where in Hebrews, the author of Hebrews encourages the church. He's writing to the church and he says, hey, you need to pay attention. You need to listen to your leaders and you need to follow the leaders whom God has placed over you. Pastors love that part. Yeah, church, you need to follow me. But the rest of that text, the other half of that verse says, because they are responsible for the condition of your soul. Wow. If you're a, a leader and God has given you responsibility, you need to accept responsibility. Oftentimes, it's a lot easier to say, well, that's not what I taught them. They did their own thing. We, we have to accept responsibility for, for oversight where God has called us to be overseers. So oversee willingly. That's the fourth characteristic here enthusiasm. You need to serve where the Lord's called you to serve enthusiastically. Now, what do I mean by that? Here he uses the word willingly. And, and later on, when he says not out of greed, he says, do it eagerly. What I would suggest to you is this characteristic means that you cannot serve the Lord well if you're serving him begrudgingly. Now, I'll be honest here. Every once in a while, Pastoral ministry becomes tiring. And the young guys and, that are serving on staff with me as fellow elders, Nathan and Matthew, you understand this. There's times when you come to the office and you get that next phone call or you get that next uh, text and you're just tired. If we ever come to the point where we begrudge what God has called us to, we either need to take time to rest or we need to quit. We need to, because here's what will happen. Leader, if you ever start griping and moaning and complaining about the role that God's called you to, those whom you are leading will see it. And they'll begin to uh, lose heart. We must, 
if God has called us to a particular role of leadership, we must embrace that leadership enthusiastically, willingly, knowing that the God who has called us will empower us and strengthen us for the task. If we're walking around with our head down, moping and griping and complaining about the calling God's placed on our life, we're missing it. Fifth, we need to serve generously. Now, that's the positive side of this. Peter says, not out of greed of money. Wow. How many private jets does a pastor need to fulfill the calling God's placed on his life? If you find yourself in a church or in a ministry who majors on money, especially if you see a pastor who's living extravagantly, flee. Now, I understand that what one person calls extravagance is not what somebody else calls extravagance. I get that. And, and you know what? There would be a basic rule of thumb for me because I, just from watching pastors and pastoral ministry, a basic rule of thumb should be that a pastor of a local church should be living around the median of what his church lives. Honestly, if, if you were going to pastor in a, in a place like Southlake and, and you were driving a 1980 Pinto and we're in, you know, we're in torn jeans and you're probably not going to be able to connect with a sheep whom God's called you to pastor. Okay. When we were working on a church plant, uh, when I was in college in Bangs, Texas, there was a particular demographic that we were trying to reach. And so the missionaries who were leading us, we, we made the decision that we were going to build a metal building because that metal building was going to fit in with the demographic of the people in that community that we were trying to reach. So it's that same kind of principle. I, I just feel like that in our culture in particular, a pastor needs to be not living way above and not living way below. He needs to be living in that, in that realm of those whom he's trying to connect with, because if the pastor can't connect with those whom he's trying to reach with the gospel and those he's trying to minister to, uh, he's, he's going to be a whole lot more weak as a pastor. But the issue here that Peter reminds him of is if you're doing it for the money, you're doing it for the wrong reason. God has not called the minister to, to serve out of greed. And I'm afraid you don't have to look very far to see a, a, in particular within the health and wealth gospel, but I would suggest even our own denomination sometimes where you see ministers who call themselves ministers of the gospel that don't get this principle. So fifth is generous. That, let, me, let me talk about a couple other things there with generosity. That means a pastor can, needs to also be generous with his time. He needs to be hospitable. First, First Timothy chapter three says he needs to be open. He needs to be generous with his, with his life. And I think that that principle of generosity should be a part of a, a pastor's heart or a, a Christian leader's heart. We ought not expect out of others what we're unwilling to do ourselves. Fifth, or sixth, 
we need to be examples to the flock. Uh, I would, uh, the characteristic I would call, uh, I would call it exemplary. We need to live a lifestyle that is an example to those around us. There's a, this gets back to, to a couple ideas. One, it's an idea of holy living. If we're going to call on a church to live a certain way, if we're going to call on people to be generous, we need to be generous. If we're going to call on people to be holy, then the leader needs to live a lifestyle that's holy. If we're going to call people to be servant leaders, then we need to be servant leaders. We need to, to and you see it here in his, his words, when the chief, I'm sorry, back up, when he says, uh, not lording it over those entrusted to you, but being examples to the flock. What Peter's saying is that it, it is not the role of the pastor to stand up and say, y'all need to go do whatever. Unless you're willing to be an example to lead in whatever that happens to be. God has called us. And now that doesn't mean a pastor has to be at every event that you can't, Okay. It doesn't mean that, that one individual or, or, or you as a leader have to be at, at every social, at every party, at everything going on. That, that's, that's just unreasonable when you get past a, a church of about 50 or, or a group of about 50 that you're leading. But it does suggest that, that the leader, the Christian leader, needs to have a heart that is willing to lead by example. Jesus was, was once again the best picture of this. Jesus was a great teacher but Jesus didn't just tell the disciples, gather them together, teach them in a classroom and say, go do. Jesus got with the disciples and went walking with them. And he showed them. He showed them how to teach. He showed them how to preach. He was an example to them. And then when he's calling them to be servant leaders, he got down on his knees with the towel in the basin and he showed them how to be humble, and he showed them how to wash feet. And when he told them that you, may, you, you are very well going to have to die for your faith at some point, a couple days later, he went to the cross and he died right in front of their eyes. A, a leader, a Christ-like leader, is going to be an example, not lording it over them, not saying, this is how you do it, go do it, but going out and serving and showing those whom he's leading, how to go about it. One of the things that you'll find out is those whom you teach are a whole lot better at doing some things than you are, which that's the good news. I don't have to be great at everything because there's some people here that are a whole lot better. In fact, probably if I were to line up every attribute or every characteristic I have as a pastor, there's somebody in this congregation that's better at it than I am. There's some of you that are better evangelists. There's some of you who are, who are better at serving. There's some of you who are better at every particular area. Praise God for that. I don't have to be the best at it. I just have to be willing to be used of God to be an example. And then seventh, the, the seventh Christ characteristic of a Christ-like leader is humility. The Christ-like leader is going to serve with a humble heart. He tells the the younger there to be subject to the older. And then he says, clothe yourselves with humility toward one another. When he says, Close your, clothe yourself with humility with one another, he's no longer just speaking to the younger. He's speaking to everybody. Every single follower of Christ should be clothed with humility. Why? Because God will resist those who are proud but he'll show grace to those who are humble.
As soon as you think you've arrived, you can do it. You've made it. God resists you. Wow. That in and of itself is a humbling thought. As long as you remain humble, God draws near to you. God can use you. You think about him and Christ's example of humility and realize that the Christ who showed that kind of humility is the Christ who from the, heather, from the heavens breathed life into creation. He, he was there at the beginning. He was, an, he was the agent of creation. He put the stars in place. He separated the seas from the land. He is the King of kings, the Lord of lords. He is God Almighty. He's been there from forever, from the beginning. That Christ is the one who took up a towel to wash the feet of Judas Iscariot. If you want to see the picture of humility, look to Jesus. If there was ever, ever anybody who would say, that job is beneath me, Jesus could have looked toward the Father and said, I ain't doing it. That job is beneath me. But that's not how he led. He led with humility as an example. So recap the seven characteristics of Christ-like leadership, stewardship, proximity, oversight, enthusiasm, generosity, exemplary, be an example, and humbly. And then he gives us a promise that's connected to that. If you serve as, as the Lord has called you to serve, when the chief shepherd appears, you will receive the unfading crown of glory. I do believe that God has a, an award system in some way. I, I don't know that it's like a Awanas where you get a little plastic crown and little, you know, stars in your crown. But I do believe that, that God has a reward waiting for those who have served him well. And I don't believe that the greatest awards are going to go to those who had the, the, the shiniest platforms and the biggest satellite ministries. I believe that, that sometimes, in fact, we may be very well surprised that the, the greatest reward given in heaven is to some widow lady that nobody ever knew her name except her pastor whom she was praying for. God has a reward system for those who faithfully serve him. And I love, he uses the, the phrase here, the unfading crown of glory. As soon as I read that and every time I read that, it takes me back to 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 4, when he talks to us about being, being prepared to suffer and being prepared to go through rough times. And, and there he reminded us that in Christ, because of what Christ has done for us and the salvation that we have in Christ leads us or gives us three, a reward that has three characteristics, an inheritance that has three characteristics. It is imperishable, it is undefiled, and it is unfading. God has for those who serve him well 
a special crown, a special reward that is imperishable, it is undefiled, and it is unfading. What God has stored up for you in heaven is far greater than anything that you might give up on this earth. Now, I say that for a reason. Because to serve the Lord well as a Christ-like leader requires sacrifice. It requires setting aside your desires, your wants, maybe your earning potential of what you could have earned in this world in monetary goods or in, in materialistic things. If God has called you to, to, a, to a place of leadership, a place of service, it requires sacrifice. For some of you, it may require surrendering your life to missions on a foreign field. It may be that God has called you to, to sacrifice and to go serve. I remember when I proposed to Susan, I knew that I knew God had called me to the ministry. Now, remember, when I proposed to Susan, I was 18, and she was 17, and it was at her senior prom. So thank you for what it's worth. I'd already asked permission from her dad. Believe it or not, he said yes. I don't know what he saw in me, but he said yes. I hope he's still glad he said yes. He's here today. But when I proposed to her, I asked her, I said, Susan, I know God's called me to the, to the ministry. And I don't know if he's called me to the mission field, if he's called me to the pastor, if he's called me, I don't know. I know he's called me to the ministry. But if God so calls, would you be willing to go live in a dung hut in the bushland of Africa to serve him? And she said, yes. Now, God had not, Ultimately, we learned that God called us to the pastoral ministry. And we have not had to make some of the sacrifices that some of our missionaries have made. God's never called me to lay down my life up to this point. He's called me to go, go to some places I was uncomfortable with. But if we're going to serve the Lord as a leader, it's going to require sacrifice. If you're going to serve in Kids Beach Club, you're going to have to sacrifice one day a week one afternoon a week for a couple hours that maybe you could be watching Oprah or something. I don't know what's on TV at that time of day nowadays, but you're going to have to make a sacrifice. It may be a monetary sacrifice. The Lord has just this week, I mean, here's, here's the good news and the great opportunity God's given us. Every year, the Lord's given us opportunity to serve our community through sharing Christmas. Last year, we, we adopted 79 children. Our commitment to, to Christmas providers who works with HEB and Birdville ISD has been that however many children come from Grace Hardeman and Watauga Elementary, they're our kids here in Watauga, we'll take them. Last year, we had 79. This year, on first call, we had 361. Our committee after I preached a sermon on missions last week. And I didn't know that we had this request made to us. The committee said, well, what else can we do? If God's called us to do it, we have to do it. Now, the number has dropped because there are other independent organizations or families that have adopted some of those families. But, but still, right now, we have 277 children that we've committed to adopt for sharing Christmas. Folks, if we're going to serve our community like that, it's going to require some sacrifice. You're going to have to sacrifice some time. You're going to have to sacrifice some money. 
You're gonna have to sacrifice some energy. It's gonna require sacrifice. But if we're gonna be Christ-like leaders in our community, it's gonna require sacrifice. You will never, no matter how much you sacrifice in serving Christ on this earth, it will never compare to unfading reward that God has prepared for you in the future. Paul said in 2 Corinthians 4, that no matter how much you suffer in this world, it cannot compare to the glory to be revealed on the other side. There is an unfading crown of glory awaiting those who serve the Lord well and who serve him faithfully. So yes, in this life, you'll sacrifice if you're gonna faithfully serve the Lord well. But believe me, the Lord sees and he knows. And then lastly, what I want you to see from this text, and this is a, a one additional point that doesn't necessarily follow the, the theme of leadership. It does and it doesn't because he ends this paragraph. It's really a transition paragraph into what we're gonna see next week. He, he starts out next week by saying, humble yourselves under the mighty hand of God. But he ends here by quoting a scripture from Proverbs chapter three. He says, God resists the proud but gives grace to the humble. You will never be an effective servant of the Lord unless you first humble your heart before him. But I wanna take that a step further because he says, God resists the proud and gives grace to the humble. You cannot be a recipient of the grace of God unless you humble yourself before him. What does that mean? Well, first of all, it, in the context of leadership, it means that you have to be humble for God to pour out his grace upon you. But even before that, see, you realize that you cannot come to faith in Christ. You cannot become a child of God. You can't, like the words Jesus used back in John chapter, chapter three, you cannot be born again. You cannot have new life in Christ unless first, you humble yourself. We live in a culture that, that's really no different than, than the cult, every culture throughout human history who wants to find a way to measure up to God. I wanna be a good enough person that God will accept me into his kingdom. You can't. You have to come to the, to the understanding that, that God is so far removed from us, he is so holy, he's so mighty, he's so powerful that the only hope that you have of coming into his kingdom is coming to a place where you say, God, I can't. I can't measure up, I'm not good enough. Whether, no matter what role you've played in his church, no matter how old you are, no matter how many years you've been to church, no matter how much money you might've given to the poor, you cannot do enough to measure up to God. You cannot be smart enough. You cannot outwit him. You can't outthink him. You can't out-philosophy him. <laughs> the, the only hope that you have of being a recipient of the grace of God that would gain you new life in him is a humble heart that comes, to the, comes before God and says, Lord, I can't. I can't get to heaven on my own. I'm not smart enough. I'm not good enough, I'm not holy enough. Lord Jesus, I need you. 
Because as long as we remain in our pride, thinking that we somehow can get to heaven because we're a good enough father or we're a good enough person or whatever it happens to be, as long as we think we're good enough, we're functioning out of pride. We have to come to the end of ourselves and say, Lord, I can't. And humble ourselves before God. And when we humble ourselves before God, he extends grace to us. For by grace, you're saved, not of works. Otherwise, men would boast. God's grace is your only hope of eternal life. And God resists the proud. He will not extend his grace to those who think they're better than him or smarter than him or they're good enough to earn it. God will only extend his grace to those who are humble who come and say, Lord, I can't get there. I need you. So as I extend an invitation today, as God is speaking to your heart, if you have not humbled yourself before God and said, God, I need you to save me. I want to begin right there. I, I, I'm going to plead with you just to simply humble yourself and say, look, I don't have it all figured out. I don't understand all of scripture. All I know is that I need Jesus to save me, and I want him to. If that's where you are, I'm going to ask you as soon as Matthew begins to lead us uh, in the first note of the first song, come out of, of where you're sitting, come down the aisle and, and meet with me or, or uh, Nathan, and I think Victoria's even going to be up here today. If, if, if you don't know for certain today that if you were to take your last breath on earth, you'd end up in heaven, don't leave here without finding out how you can come into the family of God. You've been listening to a Sunday morning message from our services here at First Baptist Wataga. Our family's mission is to exalt the Savior, equip the saints, and evangelize the lost. If you want to know more about First Baptist Wataga or need to reach out to us for prayer, go to fbcwataga.org and let us know. In all things, to God be the glory, honor, and praise.